these uh, baptism testimonies already today in our first two services have just been amazing. God's grace is crazy in the way God changes lives. God's grace is just crazy, and God is in the business of changing people's lives. Never, ever give up hope. Never, ever stop lifting up Jesus. Stop pointing people to Jesus. We are in this series on Jesus in the gospel of Mark because I want you to love Jesus. I want you to believe in a big Jesus, the kind of Jesus we've just heard about. I want you to live vertically, love radically, and lift up Christ boldly. That's our mission statement, personalized. What does it mean to love God, grow together, and reach the world? It means we live vertically. It means we love radically. And we lift up Jesus boldly. And to the extent we love Jesus, to the extent we believe in a big Jesus, to the extent we are alive in God's grace in Jesus, we will do just that. Live vertically, love radically, lift up Christ boldly. But frankly, one of our biggest problems is we can't get past ourselves. I have trouble with Jesus because I have trouble with Rob. You have trouble with Jesus because you have trouble with yourself. Instead of seeing ourselves as ambassadors of the king, we want to be the king. We want to call the shots. We want all the arrows pointed towards us. And over and over in the Gospel of Mark, this series we're going through in the life of Jesus in Mark, that's exactly what we see was the problem with the disciples. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bibles, and let's go to Mark chapter 10. We're looking here at a fascinating section out of the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pick it up in verse 32. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now, Jesus is always leading the way in the Gospels. But this is the first time we're told explicitly in Mark that Jesus was leading the way. And the disciples, his 12, were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Astonished at the teaching of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the determination of Jesus. No one has ever been like Jesus. And as we get closer to Jerusalem and here Jesus is just days away from being crucified. The people, in addition to the disciples that are with Jesus, that are following Jesus, sense that things are heating up, things are escalating, and they're afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that would be the Romans, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He will rise. Amazing section here. 
Jesus is predicting before it takes place that the entire Jewish religious establishment will turn on him, that the entire Roman political establishment will as well. In Matthew's account, parallel passage, Jesus specifically predicts how he will be killed. He specifically says he will be crucified. Now watch what happens next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In your glory, the disciples are expecting a political deliverance, a political Messiah, uh, the Romans to be overthrown, for Israel to take control of Palestine, the promised land. But Jesus has just said there's not going to be a political deliverance. Jesus has said he's going to die. James and John can't hear that. Let's continue verse 38. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am being baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, cup and baptism here are two metaphors, uh, pictures for suffering. James and John here will suffer, Jesus is saying. Actually, if you go to Acts chapter 12, James is the first of the 12 disciples who is martyred, who is put to death. Here, Jesus is anticipating all of that. Now, let's continue. When the ten heard this, they became furious. They were indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice that Jesus does not reject the concept of, of greatness. He doesn't repudiate it. Instead, he reframes it. He redeems it. He realigns, recalibrates it. And these last three verses, 43, 44, and 45, are among some of the most important in all of the Gospels. Second, only to Jesus' repeated call to love God, to worship God over, above, over and above everything else in life. And the reason these verses are so important is because here Jesus clarifies his mission and our mission. And it couldn't be more diametrically opposed to what the disciples are anticipating. 
I mean, think about the flow here. Think about what's uh, going on here. Now, imagine I go to my kids one night and say, man, I got, I got terrible news for you guys. Tonight we're going to be robbed. And, and, and these thieves are going to come in, and I'm going to try to stop them, and I'm going to be brutally killed. And, and, and the police aren't even going to help. They're not even going to care. And, and, and then imagine my kids getting silent and then looking at me and say, well, Dad, can we still get tickets to the Hawks game? That's what's going on here. The insensitivity of the disciples to what Jesus has just announced about his death is incredible. It, it's galling. The disciples cannot hear Jesus because they cannot get past themselves. Their perceptions, their needs, their wants, specifically their ambition for greatness, for a piece of the action, for fame, uh, for glory, for the limelight. Now because... Uh, this pull towards unhealthy uh, greatness is so huge for the disciples. Uh, we see it in the previous chapter as well. I want to say uh, a couple of things about an unhealthy concept of greatness. I, I want to say uh, uh, several things about worldly greatness, and then I want to flip it in the second half of my message this morning. What I want to do is talk about spiritual or healthy or kingdom greatness. So a couple of things about unhealthy or worldly greatness. Number one, <laughs> this kind of greatness is usually narcissistic. Now what is narcissism? Uh, narcissism is the thinking that uh, everything in my life revolves around me. And my glory, forget God's glory, everything in my life revolves around me. I live for my glory, not anybody else's. And it's the first lie in the Garden of Eden. And that lie is that we can be just like God, great, autonomous, all the glory. This fallen version of greatness, this unhealthy notion of greatness is rooted all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And it's narcissism and it's James and John right here in our passage. Number two, this unhealthy worldly greatness makes you overly competitive, insensitive, self-absorbed. It makes you parade what you should keep private. Hey, let me tell you about what I just did. Let me tell you about what just happened. And the more full of yourself you are, the more consumed you are with making a name for yourself like James and John here, the more pushy you'll be, the more obnoxious you'll be, uh, the more competitive you'll be. And along the way, what happens is you begin to view people as objects, either assets or threats. And you'll use people and you'll use God. James and John here are using Jesus to get what they want, to get ahead. Number three, 
this unhealthy greatness that leaks out here. Uh, we really need to watch it be, because it uh, makes it so very hard for you to see yourself realistically. Makes it almost impossible. It makes it difficult for you to see that your feet are made of clay like everybody else's. It makes it hard to admit weaknesses. It makes it hard uh, uh, to understand you have blind spots. It makes it hard to confess, to confess sin uh, before God because you have this false sense that you have arrived. Uh, James and John, in the excitement of this moment, had no idea that their pride, that their arrogance, that their press for worldly fame, for this greatness, for this limelight, uh, would go down as one of the worst moments in all of the Gospels relative to the disciples. They had no idea in the excitement of the moment that this would become one of the most glaring examples of image management in the history of the earth. And by the way, for those of you that struggle with the Bible being true, the Bible being the Word of God, uh, you don't make this kind of stuff up. If you're trying to launch a religious movement, uh, you don't put out in the front for everybody the, the glaring uh, weaknesses of your key leaders. Now, my kids are no different than your kids. And as I've gotten older, you know what I've learned? One of my kids love to hear me talk about one of the things my kids need from me the most. Well, what they need to hear from me are my failures, <laughs> my, my weaknesses. Hey, hey, Dad, tell us about that. Now, not just stories about the boats I have sunk, plural, or how I've forgotten my anniversary and scheduled a colonoscopy. We all know that. But the stories about my fears and my doubts and the way I misstepped and was looking at things all wrong, things going on on the inside. Now, why do my kids love to hear those stories? Because they need hope. Because whether they admit it or not, they know their feet are made of clay. And man, I, I want to give them hope. One of the things I do not like about pastors is this notion that we always have to be right. On our game. I mean, that, that's crazy. I, I've met a lot of pastors over the years. I, I've never met one like that. I mean, come on, are we really that insecure in the ministry that we always have to be right? That we can't admit and, and laugh at our mistakes, which are legion? <laughs> James and John are out of touch with reality. They are hyperventilating on a confused sense of arrival. Arrival. 
And you drink this Kool-Aid and you are immediately out of touch. Thinking they were right. They were so very wrong. Number four. Uh, worldly greatness as, it, as we see it here uh, is marked by talking too much, listening too little. James and John are, are talking, 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 talking. They need to be quiet. Jesus has just announced he's going to die. And they need to be thinking, man, oh man, what a, what a moment. Uh, we don't want to mess this moment up. Well, we got to be quiet. Uh, we got to zip it. We got to keep our, our, our mouths shut so we don't say the wrong thing. Nine-tenths of wisdom is learning to ask the right questions. You students, nine-tenths of wisdom is learning to ask the right questions. A life of wisdom is pursuing answering the right questions. People who excel at relationships are are people that have learned the art of asking good questions. I love to be around those people. I I love when people ask me good questions. Questions, oh wow, I hadn't thought about that. Or questions about myself. Uh, James and John should have been asking questions. Uh, Jesus What did you just say? And instead they're just talking. And boy, would they love to have this one back. Number five, unhealthy worldly greatness makes you demanding, makes you controlling. Uh, worldly leadership, it's really easy to see because it's marked by domination. Domination. Being bossy. Matthew, in his parallel account, interestingly enough, tells us that the question James and John ask here was first asked by their mother. She went to Jesus. Hey, hey, Jesus, my two boys here, as you move in and you set up your kingdom and as you reign in your throne in Jerusalem, hey, my two boys on your right and left, okay? Can we shake on it? So James and John are just coming by this honestly. What you have is a family with a problem of control. Maybe a family full of control freaks. A a, a mother and two sons trying to control outcomes, trying to take advantage, trying to push an elbow to to be the first in line, uh, trying uh, to use the kingdom of God to advance their personal agenda. Happens all the time. I mean, think about what's going on here. Think about the pathology Uh, when you ask for or expect or uh, insist on privilege and and status instead of humbly uh, denying your rights, man, you are in trouble. Makes for bad marriages, bad relationships. 
controllers, people that have to be in control, think more about how things will impact them, how circumstances, people can serve them rather than how they impact others, how they can serve others. Uh, controllers, and that's what we're seeing here, uh, are, are people who, who think more about setting the uh, agenda according to their preferences rather than finding joy in submitting to the agenda of another like Jesus. Now that's uh, just a, a, a little on the unhealthy, on the, the worldly concept of, of greatness. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden that we see here leaking out in Mark chapter 10. It's the air the disciples breathe. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus knows uh, that unless uh, they can understand that his throne is infinitely greater than their own thrones, that they will never, ever find an ounce of joy in the hard and the humbling task of following him. So here Jesus in our section, beginning in verse 43, redeems and reframes this concept of greatness and invites the disciples to, to seek a new, to seek a better, to seek a, a, a different kind of leadership. So look at what Jesus says. Let's read it again in verse 43. Notice how he begins, not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even, even, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This could not be more counterintuitive, countercultural. And again, you don't make a God like Jesus up. You don't make this kind of God up. I mean, a God who came in humility, uh, born in poverty, who lays down his life for rebels, and who calls his key followers uh, to be servants, not masters. Uh, just as he conducted, just as he lived his life. Now, don't misunderstand. It's never wrong to be competent. Uh, this isn't about you apologizing for your gifts or your success. It, it's wrong to make it all about you. Which is what is going on here with James and John. So Jesus steps in, beginning in verse 43, just in these two verses, three verses, 43, 44, 45, and changes all that. So now a couple of things, four things Jesus says about healthy kingdom greatness, leadership, whatever you want to call it. And the first is this, kingdom greatness is service. It's service. This is right on the surface here. And it's viewing yourself as a redeemed, forgiven, deeply loved servant of the king of kings whose mission in life 
is to meet the needs of others around you by laying down your life just as your Lord Jesus has done for you. And that has nothing to do with inferiority. It has nothing to do with inability, nothing to do with incompetence. It has everything to do with investing in the highest good of others around you. Especially uh, the least and the overlooked. Uh, Sometimes the New Testament will describe this concept with the word love. Here it's being described with the word serve. Uh, So we think of loving service. And I want you to see, interestingly enough, how Jesus illustrates this. So let's look at a passage in Luke 22, just a verse. Look at what Jesus says. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I'm different, man. I am among you as the one who serves. So here, Jesus says, go to Chili's or Olive Garden. Or you pick the restaurant and go in and notice you got two groups of people there. You got the wait staff and you got the customers. And in the world's reckoning, the customers are king, they're supreme. But Jesus is saying here in Luke 22 I didn't come to be a customer, I came to be part of the wait staff. And so to be like Jesus is to see yourself as a waiter. And instead of uh, going through life sitting at the table, you go through life serving the table. You live your life as a waiter. That's what Jesus is saying. Think about it. When Jesus wants to illustrate how he desires that we live our lives, when he wants to illustrate what his mission, his mentality, his concept of, of greatness is, he says, go to Chili's. Go to that restaurant and look at the wait staff. Think about all they do. Think about all they put up with. Oh, you didn't like your hamburger? Oh, you didn't like the ketchup? Oh, you didn't like the water? Well, hold on. We'll be right back. We'll have two different hamburgers and a whole truckload of water for you because we want to make you happy. Uh, amazing illustration in Luke 22. So Jesus' point in, in Mark 10 and this Luke passage is Jesus came to be a waiter. A, a couple of months ago, I was speaking at a retreat in Laguna Beach, California. Unbelievably beautiful. Weather's well, just a little better than here in Illinois. And I, I was speaking for a, a large ministry organization, nonprofit, and um, they had this retreat, put us up, put Rhonda and me up in one of the most, probably the, the nicest hotel we've ever been in. And uh, one of the ways to illustrate this is when we were walking down the hall, and if you'd pass a, a member of the hotel staff, they did something I've never seen any place else in my life. Uh, they're coming this way, you're going this way, and all of a sudden they would stop and they would turn to the side. 
And as you go by, they would say, how are you today? Is there anything we can do for you? And I'm looking behind me thinking, what, is the president behind me? Is there somebody behind me? Is there anything we can do for you? Uh, Jesus is saying, this is greatness. This service orientation is how I want you to live your life. Because it's exactly how I lived mine. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Number two. This kingdom greatness here, and there is so much here, it is hard, often thankless work. I am struck that Jesus has placed this conversation about service at the end of a longer conversation about his hardship and his death. We are most like Jesus when we serve. When we love people, when we give to people, when we point people to to Jesus. But there is nothing easy about this service, this kingdom service. It costs Jesus his life. We live in a sinful, fallen world. We are sinful, fallen people. We have sinful, fallen families. We have sinful, fallen churches. Nothing but sinful, fallen churches. Life in this sinful, fallen world is hard. Sometimes really hard. Service is even harder. Because we live in a sinful, fallen world. Uh, So people will fail to appreciate you. They will be rude to you. They will reject you. They will ignore you. It will be easy to think nobody cares. It will be easy to think nobody understands you. It will be easy to think as you continue to serve and you're tired in serving and and nobody's responding that God has forgotten you. There is a cost to service. You will be tired, you will be stressed, you will not have time for it, you will be disappointed, you will be misunderstood, but there's nothing more meaningful, there's nothing more uh, uh, beautiful. Because when you serve, you are most like Jesus. But the world, your flesh, and the devil himself will make it hard. You can count on that. Number three, this greatness that Jesus is redeeming here means that the body of Christ, the church, is not optional. Not optional. In these three verses, 43, 44, 45, Jesus is assuming something. He is assuming a theology of community. He is assuming the priority of relationships within the body of Christ. He's talking to the disciples about how the disciples should relate to the other disciples. He's assuming that regardless of how difficult the service, regardless of how uh, stressed, how busy, whatever, the body of Christ is never optional. Otherwise, what he is saying has no context. Now, this is hard for us 
Because over the last 25 years, one of the major shifts in evangelicalism in North America is that the church has become increasingly optional. So many other things going on. Now, in just a couple of more days, Jesus, as I said, is going to be crucified. He's going to be hung on the cross. He's coming to the end of his earthly life here. His ministry, his earthly ministry is winding up. And so Jesus is repeatedly, repeatedly talking about, in light of his death, how the disciples should live. And I want you to see one other passage where Jesus says the same thing differently. Look at John chapter 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's talking about our relationships with one another in the community of Christ. You are my friends if you do, if you do what I command you. Now the ultimate reason here in John, here in Mark, uh, that our homes, that our friendships, that our small groups, that our adult classes, that the different contexts we serve in. And by the way, I hope you'll take this insert seriously in your worship folders, and I, if you're not serving, that you'll figure out a way to serve. Uh, uh, the ultimate reason uh, that service in these different contexts matters and that we are most like Christ when we're serving is because this is exactly what Jesus has done for us, for me. Now, I want you to hear me in what I'm about to say. And I got a piece of this from somebody else. This concept of, of Christians as brothers and sisters is not mere metaphor. It's a New Testament biblical reality. The church as a family trumps all other biological, racial, social, economic allegiances. And here in John 15, this passage we just looked at, here in our passage, Mark chapter 10, Jesus is describing how to be loyal to that kingdom reality. Regardless of whether you're married or single, whether you're rich or poor, regardless of your background, regardless of your, your schedule, Notice at the end of verse 44 in Mark chapter 10, Jesus does not say whoever wants to be first must be a slave of a few or of those who dress like you or like your teams or whatever. Jesus says whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. The whole community, the least, the unloved, the, the ignored. And what I want you to understand this morning is you cannot, you cannot, you cannot live. Mark 10, 45. If you have a watered-down, minimalistic, half-hearted view of the church. The church is the hope of the world. And here Jesus himself shows us how it should look. Serve each other. Really, that insert in our worship folders in light of God's word is not optional for us. Number four, kingdom greatness, this, this healthy spiritual greatness that Jesus is reframing demands humility, and humility always, always demands grace. Grace. 
There is no room for greatness in the kingdom of God because it's been exhausted in Jesus Christ. Exhausted in Jesus Christ. Our problem, however, my my problem is that my sin turns me in on myself. Causes me to be self-focused, causes me to be critical, causes me to be demanding, exacting, causes me to be uncommitted. Uh, uh, my, uh, my sin, our sin causes us to focus on our feelings, our, our, our preferences, on, on what we want, and it continually pushes us to make ourselves the center of our universe. Uh, our sin causes us to be angry and impatient instead of self-sacrificing and giving and content. Uh, Our 19-year-old Ryan left two days ago, left early on Friday morning uh, to work at at a large camp for most of the summer in the state of Texas. And about an hour after he was on the road, he called and said, oh, Dad, man, we're stuck on, um, we've been stuck on 55 going south. And actually, traffic didn't move for about 25 minutes. And then he said to me, and and Dad, I was so frustrated, just like you would have been. (laughs) Just like you would have been, Dad. Jesus Christ laid down his life to rescue us from ourselves, from our anger, from our impatience. He he laid down his life to free us from the bondage of image management. He laid down his life not to take away our humanity, but to give it back to us. Service demands humility, and humility demands grace. And all the grace in the universe is available to you in Jesus Christ. It's yours for the taking. This service, this Mark 10, 45 variety, means you being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others. It means you actively looking for places Uh, where you can be an agent of compassion, an agent of love, an agent of mercy. It it means you uh, never, never viewing the success of your life in terms or measuring it in terms of the size of your bank account, but always by the quality of your investments in others. It it, it means you, you never, and hear me in this, You never retire. Uh, You never graduate from service. You you never get an exemption from kingdom service. Someone right now, right around you, has lost her way. Uh, Someone right now, right, right near to you, is really discouraged and feels overwhelmed. 
Someone right now, right around you, is tempted to step outside God's word. And Jesus has chosen you to be the hope of the world. Not to be the king, but to be a servant of the king. And it's in our service that we change the world. Now let's pray. As we prepare to take the offering, and as we prepare to worship, let's prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for all that you have given us in your Son. Thank you for the wonder of Jesus and his service and his sacrifice and his love and his mercy. Would you work in our lives that in seeing Jesus, we would be humbled before Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.